Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. All right, guys, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We are working our way through this book of the Bible, and we have gotten to a part that should, it ought to be familiar to all of us. So Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 10. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're getting into the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Man, it's weird because, you know, our theology doesn't necessarily drive us to think of the Ten Commandments as the most central piece of the Christian puzzle. You with me? We we hold it in importance. We, We don't neglect it, but... You know, if we were going to have a rallying cry, it probably wouldn't be Deuteronomy 5, 7 necessarily or, or any of these commands per se. We would probably go in the Gospels or we'd go to one of Paul's letters and find a verse that is really clear and really clearly articulates the Gospel. But it's interesting because in the public sphere, the Ten Commandments, has often been sort of the rallying cry for Christian activism of a certain kind, hasn't it? Like we've seen a lot of fighting around the inclusion or exclusion of the Ten Commandments in public places, right? The inclusion or exclusion of the Ten Commandments being at courthouses and probably schools and all those kinds of environments, and it's become sort of the sort of like the, just the center of that argument, that debate in culture. And my temptation, my temptation is to think, man, like what a weird thing to emphasize, right? What a weird horse for Christians to ride into town on, the Ten Commandments. But that's probably due to a lack of intentional thought on my part. Because if we understand the Ten Commandments the way the first hearers would have understood the Ten Commandments, and if we understand the Ten Commandments in their ancient Near Eastern context and in the context of all of biblical theology, we kind of start to take a different perspective. And that goes back to what the Ten Commandments are actually attempting to accomplish, right? And remember... This is one of those 
Bible background facts that's really helpful for us to hold in mind. So I say it over and over again, and I think by now you've probably gotten it just about memorized if you've been here long enough. But in most temples all throughout the ancient Near East, if you get into the holiest place of the temple, what would you find? A, an idol. You're getting ahead. Of, you're, getting, <laughs> you're getting ahead. But an idol, you would find a statue, right? And the statue is not just like a picture of the God. It's associated with the actual authority and power of the God. It's a representative more than it's a representation. It's not just a picture, not just a statue. It's actually, it's the representative of the God, right? And you're supposed to deal with it just as though it were the God himself. That's, that's what you find. Well, in Israel, it's different. You don't find any pictures of God whatsoever, whether inscribed or engraved or whatever the case may be. You're not going to find anything like that about God. You're not going to find it carved or engraved because God said don't do that. But what do you find? You find a box, right? And inside of the box, you find Stone tablets, and on those stone tablets, you find the Ten Commandments. So, in other words, these Ten Commandments serve as the equivalent to the statue of the gods in all the other temples. What's happening there? So, the image of <coughs> the the image of the foreign nations' gods was represented in a statue. The image of Israel's God is represented in two tablets with words on them. Kind of wild, right? So then we take that fact, right? So this is the image, this is the image that God wants to represent himself. It's these words that we call the Ten Commandments. Well, but then we also recognize that God's already told us who his image is, hasn't he? Anybody know who that is? It's us, right? Humans are God's image. So with those two things together, what we find out is the Ten Commandments are not just a, a, little, bit of, a little bit of legal and acceptable legalism in the middle of the Bible. They're not just the things that Christians are supposed to do in order to be to be good boys and girls. That's, that's not what it's about at all. What it's actually about is a roadmap for how to flourish as human beings. So the Ten Commandments are all about human flourishing. How can we live a good life together as a people? How can we do that? The Ten Commandments answer that question. Well, you can do that by honoring God... You can do that by honoring one another, and you can do that by honoring these laws that God has put in front of us. And we're going to look at that today in terms of the first commandment. And when we start to do that, we're also going to realize there's some weird stuff about the commandments, isn't there? This, there just is. First of all, Deuteronomy is different from Exodus in the way that it portrays the Ten Commandments. Now, remember, when Moses is, when Moses is 
delivering Deuteronomy to the people, he's giving the Ten Commandments to them from memory, isn't he? He has to be. He can't possibly be reading it because why? Why can't he be reading it? Anybody know? It's in the box. That's right. Ben's on a roll back here. It's in the box. The Ten Commandments are in the box. So he can't be, he doesn't have access to that. So he's probably preaching this from memory. And what he's doing is he's actually filling in from his own preaching a little bit differently when he gets to the Sabbath law. And we're going to talk about that more when we get to the Sabbath commandment in a couple of weeks. But it's just interesting to note. The other thing that's crazy about the Ten Commandments is Christians don't agree about what the Ten Commandments are. Did you guys know that? If you ask different Christians what are the Ten Commandments, they'll give you different lists. Catholics have their own list. And even sometimes different Protestants have different lists of the Ten Commandments. For example, Catholics, um, in order to... The Catholics number it differently. They break the coveting commandment into two commandments. And then they, they push the images commandment into... Um, a different way of thinking about it so that that one's a little bit less of a significant thing and you get your 10 in a different way in that manner. You with me? And, and there's some justification for either direction. It's, it's Hebrews just not always all that definite about the way that we should think about this. But I think it's fairly clear that um, the typical Protestant numbering is correct. So what we're going to look at today is the first commandment we're going to think of as the first commandment, which is really two. And that's this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, etc. That's going to be our text for the day. And what we're going to really look at is, and this is how my favorite scholar of Deuteronomy puts it, that the Lord has a right to exclusive allegiance. The Lord has a right to exclusive allegiance. So let's look at how this plays out here. So first of all, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first thing we see is that God is Savior, right? We, we owe him exclusive allegiance because he is Savior, He's the one who rescued Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And God's reiterating this for a good reason. Because remember, when the Ten Commandments were first given, what was happening down on the ground? The, the people were making a golden calf. Not only that, but what were they saying about this golden calf? These are the gods who brought us out of Egypt, right? These are the gods. And so they're ascribing this saving power, this saving act to the calf. So they understand that they need to worship whoever did this, right? They understand that whoever did this deserves their worship, deserves their allegiance. But they're ascribing it to something they can see. Because Moses is up here in the middle of the thunder and lightning getting who knows what done to him. He's probably not coming down. And we need to make sure that we've got somebody to worship in the meantime. So let's, everybody, bring us your gold, and let's do this thing. It took a lot of sacrifice 
to make those calves, didn't it? They understood they needed to do this thing, but they were ascribing salvation to the wrong God. And so the first thing God wants to get clear, I'm the Savior. I'm the Savior. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. You don't have to look around for that. You don't have to look in the skies. You don't have to look in the seas. You don't have to look around you in the mountains or the high places. You can know that I, Yahweh, saved you. I did that alone. How did God rescue the family of Israel from exile and slavery? God sent ten plagues on Egypt and humbled them until they let his people go. In other words, God demonstrated his power in rescuing Israel from Egypt. So there's a lot bound up here. There's God's love. There's God's loyalty to his people. There's God's power. All these things are here in this testimony that God gives to himself. That I'm the one who brought you out, out of the house of slavery. And then we get the first piece of this command. You shall have no other gods before me. What is God saying here? I, I have a right to exclusive allegiance and that means that I am first. God is first. It's, it's like a marriage. There's priority here. There's priority here. God wants to be God wants to be first. And listen, when I, when I got married to Emily and I, I asked her to make me her priority, I wasn't denying that other men exist, was I? I understood that other men exist. I understand that there are other people she could give her loyalty to. There are other people she could give her love to. There are other people she could give her affection to. But what I'm asking when I said, will you marry me, is that she would make me the one that she prioritizes in all those ways, Right? It's not a denial that other men exist. In the same way, God's command that Israel worship him alone and most highly, most importantly, is not a denial that other little G.O.D.s exist. We know that there are evil powers. There are evil spiritual beings who exist. It's not the fact that God is alone in the spiritual realm. There are other spiritual beings, some of them evil, some of them fallen. And so... The idea that these may have set themselves up as the gods of the nations is very plausible, isn't it? It's very likely that that's the case. Um, and you can read about that in a lot of, there's a book called um, The Gods of the Nations by Dan Block. You can read to kind of get your head around what was happening in the ancient Near East. But Israel, Israel was not born in a world where monotheism was the reigning philosophy it was it was more so that different nations had fealty to a god one particular god but they believed in you know they liked their god best but the people in egypt still believed in the gods of the nations around them they just didn't like them right and they didn't have loyalty to them and the same with israel they believed that some of these gods might be real spiritual beings, but they're not gods in the sense that God is God. They didn't create the heavens and the earth. They didn't bring into existence everything that is. They weren't um, loving and kind. They're not the ones who rescued them. So God is first. What's that mean? Well, he wants our highest honor. He wants us to honor him more highly than anything or anyone else. 
He wants our highest priority. He wants us to prioritize him more highly than anyone or anything else. He wants to be our highest good. And here's the thing. This is going to have an impact in our practical everyday life, isn't it? In fact, here's what I would say. If, if you just got in a line here and walked up to the pulpit with your bank statements and your day planners, I could give you a pretty good evaluation of how well you're obeying this commandment, couldn't I? And you can do that yourselves. You don't need me to look at it. You can go back and look at your bank statements. You can go back and look at your day planner, your calendar, and you can evaluate for yourself how seriously you're taking the first commandment. Is God your highest priority? Because our time and our money is a really good way to think about that, isn't it? It's a really good way to try to get our heads around that. And here's the deal. Like the temptation is, the temptation is to only count religious things as a way of prioritizing God, isn't it? The temptation is to look at our, like our tithe or our offering, be like, well, you know, that's only 10%, so does that mean I value everything else nine times more than I value God, you know? Or we could say, well, I only went to church on Sundays and story groups, so that's two hours a week. Does that mean I value everything else like 50 times more than God? Or what's the, what's the deal here? Well, no, that's not necessarily the case, but it is the case that we can look at the ways that we leverage the good things God has put in our lives and from that, we can see where our affections lie. We can look at how we leverage the good things God has put in our lives. And from that, we can find where our affections lie. If we look at our day planners, our calendars, if we look at our, if we look at our bank statements, does it look like we love what God loves? Does it look like we value what God values? In other words, does it look like we're following after him in our affections, in our desires, in the things we chase, the things we do? Are we upholding the things that God upholds? Are we placing a priority on the things that God asks us to place a priority on? And I would challenge you to go look at the last few months of your calendar and your bank statements and do an evaluation. Where, where, where does this say my values are? When I'm consulting with different businesses and ministries and stuff, we talk about values and we try to really get to the heart of their values, right? And one of the things that we talk about is the difference between aspirational values and real values, because aspirational values are what everybody's going to tell you when you ask them what their values are. Well, I value all these beautiful, wonderful things over here. And it's like, well, okay, let's talk about what you're doing in, in real life. What are you doing? What's the last thing somebody told you you're good at? Right? What's the last thing you recognized as energizing you as you did it? Those are, those are your real values. This over here, this is just what you'd like to talk about. Right? This is what you want people to think your values are. But your real values are, are these things over here. And the same thing can happen to us just as individuals. Like we can have these aspirational priorities that we talk about, that we put down on paper, or that, we, um, that we put in our resolutions on January 1st every year. But then we have our real world priorities that determine how we spend our time 
and how we spend our money. And that's what's going to tell us whether we're running after God as our highest good, our highest priority. And that's what God's asking for here. You shall have no other gods before me. And this doesn't mean that we should prioritize God the most merely, although it does mean that. But what it also means is that we should not be worshiping other gods, period, right? No one, nothing else may have our hearts in that way. Our budgets and our calendars can tell us that's the case. So God is first. But what about this next piece? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the Lord has a right to exclusive allegiance, and he is jealous God is jealous. You can imagine the same kind of husband that I was when I asked my wife to marry me. But imagine that husband, he's saying to his wife, look, I don't want you to have pictures of other men. Right? I don't want you to carry around pictures of other men. I don't, I don't want them. I don't care if they're guys you know from high school. I don't care if they're guys you know from college. I don't care... They're guys you know from the restaurant down the road. I don't, I don't want you to be carrying around pictures of other men. Don't be hanging that stuff up around the house. And don't be carrying it around in your wallet. Remember when people used to carry pictures around in their wallets? Remember that? Anybody, does anybody still do that, pictures in your wallet? I don't think so. I don't think anybody has pictures in their wallets anymore. Um, they don't even sell them on school picture day anymore, wallet-sized pictures. Isn't that crazy? But... Nonetheless, don't do it. Don't carry around pictures of other men in your wallet, right? I don't want you to do that. What's he saying? He's saying that I don't want you to be constantly reminding yourself of other men. And what's God saying here? I don't want you to be constantly reminding yourself of other opportunities for worship and loyalty and allegiance. That's part of it. No carved images. But what's the other part? If you carve images to worship, if you carve images to give your allegiance to, to bow down to, to serve, you're actually inverting God's design of the universe. Because God didn't design the world for human beings to be bowing down in worship to the creatures, did he? But God created all of the creatures to bow down, not in worship, but in understanding that human beings are given as the king of the earth. That's our role. We're supposed to be teaching these creatures how to live in accordance with God's design. We're supposed to teach trees and grasses how to, how to flourish in accord with God's design. And lions and um, kangaroos and 
puppies for those of you who like such things. You know, We're supposed to be teaching them how to live in accordance with God's design. And we see that in lots of ways. We see it in different farming movements. We see it in the way that people are drawn to training animals and seeing animals. How, how are we just like captivated by seeing animals yielding to human leadership? We went to the circus the other day, and one of the things that they did at the circus was they had these people riding buffaloes, and these buffaloes would like dance on little, uh, I don't know, little stools or whatever. They would like get up there with all four of their legs and spin around with somebody on their back. And they were like, this is the only show in the world with trained buffaloes. And it was like this awe-inspiring moment of buffaloes doing what they're told, you know. And you know what? I loved it. I was like, that's awesome. Buffaloes, you know, they're doing what they tell them to do. And it's, we're drawn to that kind of stuff. Or lions jumping through flaming hoops, all those things. It, we're drawn to it because it's a reminder of the way that the world is supposed to be. It's a weird reminder because there's no telling what kind of mistreatment those animals are subject to in order to arrive at that level of obedience. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a broken example of something real and beautiful. When I first... When I first learned about this human call to steward and lead and rule over all things, when I first learned about that in seminary, I remember I was at a camp in just outside Baltimore called Skycroft. It's a Baptist camp outside of Baltimore. And I was leading the camp there. I was teaching different sports and stuff. And I found myself kind of off by myself in the woods, and I saw a deer and in my just youthfulness, I, like, got down on one knee, and I was trying to, like, call it to me, you know? <laughs> like I was exercise my image. And so let's see if this deer will recognize my humanity and do my bidding, you know? Like, come to me, young deer. I am the image of God, you know? <laughs> like, what's, um, I might be the only person that ever tried something like that after hearing a theology lesson, you know? But there's something that is captivating to us about different it's the reason people love puppies you know because there's something captivating about that idea and we invert that when we carve images of all these creatures to give them allegiance what are we doing we're denying God's gift to us as humans what privilege do humans have above the rest of creation it's not what privilege do bats have above the rest of creation, right? It's not what privilege do um, the whatever creature you might want to engrave have over the rest of creation. Humans are made as the image of God. Humans. So it's dehumanizing to carve these images. And it's blasphemous because in doing that, we say no to God's order for the universe. And man, it's easy, easy to get right when we're talking about actual carvings, isn't it? Kurt's a pretty good carver, so I guess if I really wanted to, I could get him to carve me up, carve me up a little G God that I could carry around him. <laughs> yeah, a little, little bitty thing. It would be intricately carved. It would be perfect. Um, but we're not really tempted by those things, right? What we are tempted by, check this out, is ordering our lives around, ordering our lives around things that are not God. And in the same way, when we do that, it's not just that we're dishonoring God, 
we're also dehumanizing ourselves. We're, we're acting as less than human. We're turning God's creation order upside down. Just as Adam and Eve did in the garden, what did they do? They yielded to the serpent. Instead of tutoring the serpent, instead of giving him their leadership, they yielded to his leadership. The world got turned upside down. We do the same thing when we order our lives according to something less than the highest good. The highest good being God's glory. The worship of God. I also want to speak just for a second to this whole thing at the end of this passage. Remember, God's jealous. He's going to visit iniquity. And by iniquity, he means this breaking this specific commandment, right? He's going to visit this iniquity to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What's God talking about here? How's he going to visit this on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me? And they demonstrate their hate by what? Carving these images and giving their allegiance to these images. And he says, I'm three or four generations worth are going to have this iniquity visit upon them. Well, what's this mean? I think we have to really do some thinking about the context here. Because in the ancient Near East, if you went to an average household and you kind of looked inside, you would not find a man and his wife and some kids. That's not what would make up a household. A lot of times what would make up a household would be up to really four generations. right? You would find many generations living in the same house. And people had children then much younger than they do now, especially much younger than they do in 2023, but even younger than they did in the 50s or the 30s or whatever. They had children very early in life. So you would find four generations living in the same house very frequently. And so this is probably meant to be um, not, a, not something you would see played out across many decades, but something that could be played out in one moment, right? You follow? I mean, have you ever just like said something you shouldn't say and then looked over and noticed that your kid was listening? Anybody ever done that? You just like, and then you're aware that you shouldn't have said it immediately, right? Or, or you're flipping through whatever, like you're scrolling and something pops up. And you're like, oh my goodness, I hope they didn't see that. Like we're aware of things that happen. I remember I took a whole group of my team from camp to a movie one time and I thought the movie was going to be fine I, I think I'd even seen it by myself before and I was fine with it but man when I was there with all these people from camp I was like holy moly this movie is bad I gotta get, I should not have brought these people here I should never have been okay with it in the first place you know but it made me aware of it because I had these other people that were my spiritual responsibility with me um, so what's happening here well I think what's happening is if you as the leader of your household are carving images of things that are up in the sky, the heavens. This says heaven, but the word for heaven and the word for the skies is the same word. So I think what's happening here is just Genesis 1 stuff. It's creatures in the skies, graven images, right? Creatures on the earth, on the land, and creatures in the waters under the earth. This word about under, it does, it's a preposition, but it doesn't always mean under. It's just regular waters. Are you with me? It's not like, these aren't like special waters that are tucked underneath of the continent or something. Just regular water. So it's just Genesis 1 stuff. Birds, 
land critters, sea critters. You're carving this stuff you've got to set up in your house. Well, in a moment, in a moment, you can destroy the imagination of a child. Can't you? In a moment, you can malform the imagination of the others in your household. And that iniquity is visited upon them instantaneously. Man, if only, if only this were only true of graven images. Wouldn't that be a relief? But the truth is that all of our habits, all of our ways of living are either ordered toward the highest good or they're not. Aren't they? All of our conversations are either ordered toward the highest good or they're not. All of our purchases are either ordered toward the highest good or they're not. The ways that our kids see us as dads spending our free time, that's either ordered to the highest good or it's not. Either we're bowing down to graven images or we're not. Either we're showing our steadfast allegiance to the God who made us or we're not. And the kids around us are having their imaginations, their spiritual imaginations formed in those moments by everything they see us do, say, everything they perceive that we love. Right? Their imaginations are being formed. Your sin, your sin, my sin, affects our entire household. Not just in the decades and centuries to come, but right, right now, right now. We used to have a dog, um, Emily and I, and even when Farmer was born, we still had him. His name was Mr. Waylon Jennings, and he was fantastic. We like got hair, we tried like hair samples from like dozens and dozens of different breeds of dogs to try to figure out if Emily could coexist with one of them. We really wanted to try it. And we finally found this one breed that was like not making her have asthma attacks. It was crazy. Well, got this dog and so we succumbed to the lunacy of pet ownership. And I did this thing where, um, you guys probably do it too. I'm sure you've done it. Maybe even to your kids. I don't know. I don't think I've done it to my kids yet. But you take a blanket and you just like throw it over the dog as like an IQ test to see how long it takes them to get loose from the blanket. You guys ever do that to your dogs or whatever? Yeah. Well, I would, I kind of like, that was a little bit too easy, you know. And so what I would do is I would throw it over them in such a way that like the, the head part I had kind of like, I just had it knotted up in a certain way so the head part would kind of capture his head a little bit, you know. And then when it hung over, I would have a lot of blanket left and I could grab it and swing it back underneath of him. So he's like not just covered but also tangled up inside of the blanket, you know, and just watch him just struggling to get out of that blanket. I know this is terrible. This, I don't deserve to be a dog. I, you know, just believe me, I've repented of this now, but I'm telling you the story just for the sake of, illustration but you know he was just like he would try to get loose he loved it for whatever reason he would finally get loose after struggling and struggling and struggling because you know you can't see <laughs> he was just freaking out and man you know that struggle that picture of struggle man just fighting to get free of this thing right we we have got we have got to treat sin that way 
We have got to fight against it with that kind of determination, that kind of seriousness. We've, because, man, when we think about sin and we think about just the moment of, I'm either going to do this bad thing, I'm not going to do this bad thing, you know, it's like we're never going to win that battle. We're never going to because sin's too fun, right? And doing it or not doing it is not a powerful enough question for us to ask ourselves. It's not powerful enough to rescue us in the moment. It's never going to happen. What we have to do is we have to fight. We have to obey, not like the moment depends on it. We have to obey like our life depends on it. And even then, I don't think we're going to do that good of a job, truth be told. And I think that's why God wrote this command this way. What we have to do is we have to obey like our kids' lives depend on it. Because, because they do. Because they do. Because check this out. Especially brothers, you. Check this out. What we do in a weak moment by ourselves forms who we are at the dinner table with our kids. It forms who we are as we come home from work and we enter into this moment when we're present with our kids. It forms our habits. It forms in ways that we don't even recognize and see. It forms the way that we got our families and spending our money. It forms the way we got our families and spending our time. It forms the way that we order our household toward the highest good or not. Those private moments. So we have to fight even in those moments. We have to fight not like our moment depends on it, but like our life depends on it, like our kids' lives depend on it. Because they don't see that moment, but they see the you who results from that moment. And they're formed by that. And their lives are set on a trajectory by what they see. And they're either going to see the most optimally Christ-like version of you. <laughs> They're either going to see the you that results from a thousand little yeses to God's Holy Spirit. Or they're going to see the you that results from a thousand little, simple, seemingly insignificant no's to God's Holy Spirit. And so I've got to fight harder, guys. I've got to fight harder. I've got to fight like my kids' lives depend on every moment. We've all got to fight harder. We've got to, we've got to lean into obedience like there's real significance to it because there is. And our kids are going to live out the consequences of our obedience or disobedience, as are their kids and their kids after them. And this goes for the ladies too, but... Man, it's pressing in on me as a dad. And so, yeah. I want to pray for us. I just want to pray that God would give us the strength to obey with a full heart. To obey with a full heart. Just fully registering the significance of every single moment. Every moment. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we are... We are so thankful for your goodness and your kindness that you have already made a way for us. You've already made a way for us to be your friends, to be your kids through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. 
We don't have to wonder. We don't have to worry. We can know that we're accepted, that we're loved, that we're forgiven. God, thank you for that. Thank you for the centrality of the gospel in all of Scripture. And God, thank you for its truth and its power to change us and shape our lives and to help us to um, help us to live in peace in spite of our shortcomings. God, we we just need your help. We're so very sorry. We're so very sorry that we have not obeyed you like we should. That we have not taken this call to obedience as seriously as we ought. We've not seen our responsibility as clearly as we should. We pray that you would help us to obey with a full heart. A heart full of love and allegiance to you. And a heart full of devotion and affection for our kids and our spouses. That you've given us leadership over and responsibility for pray that you would help us to fight for obedience in every moment like our lives depend on it, like our kids' lives depend on it. Fill our hearts with love for you. Give us a tenderness and a softness toward your Holy Spirit so we're quick to hear when he warns us and we're quick to yield when he corrects us and we're quick to receive your forgiveness when we fail you. Order our lives around the highest good, Lord. Help us do that by your power and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.